0: There are nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating to Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. in.
1: Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm your host, Blake Thompson-Hoyer, and today we're hearing from Dennis Fisher, editor-in-chief of the independent security news site Decipher and a longtime InfoSec journalist. We'll talk about the state of cyber journalism today, reminisce on a few big stories, and dig into Dennis's background as a crime reporter and author. But before we jump into the conversation, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Confusion in the marketplace about which is the best method of security testing is so real. Bug bounty, pen testing, pen testing as a service, what do they all mean? We break it down in our latest playbook, Navigating the Security Testing Landscape, to demonstrate the strategic value of third-party security testing. We cherry-picked the best elements across the security testing market to incorporate into a strategic, comprehensive pen testing solution, the Synac platform. Learn more at synac.com forward slash playbook. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com forward slash playbook. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Dennis. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you co-founded both ThreatPost and now Decipher and have been covering Infosec in some capacity for for over two decades. What are some of the biggest changes that you've witnessed in the beat since 2000 in in the Y2K bug
0: era? Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about how long it's been, but when I first started covering security, it was end of 2000, beginning of 2001. I was at what had just become E-Week Magazine at the time. It was PC Week before that. And the guy who had been covering security at the time had just left. And so I kind of put my hand up and said, hey, that looks like a fun beat. I want to do that. I had been covering email before that, which is like, yeah, imagine how exciting that the was. The email beat. The, t- today, it'd be the Slack beat, I guess. Uh, e- essentially, yeah. It was extremely uninteresting. But I was like, hey, this was in the era of like VB script viruses and things like that. Like, I love you and the Anna virus and that, that kind of stuff. So I had done some security stories with Scott Baranato, who was the, the security reporter at the time when scott left i was like hey i want to i want to do this so i ended up getting it nobody else wanted to do it and really all it entailed was vir- like email born viruses was pretty much everything at the time and then pretty quickly after that in like the 020304 time frame became the, hey, let's focus on how bad Windows is and how bad Internet Explorer is and how many bugs there are in the software that we're all using and why is everybody in this monoculture and we're all exposed to these serious problems at the time. And this is when groups like Loft and then At Stake and some other security research teams were really starting to look for bugs actively in you know popular software like IE, Windows, not so much Linux at the time, but popular enterprise and consumer software was really coming under the microscope for for these early research teams. So that became a big thing. And, you know, that led to the trustworthy computing memo from Bill Gates and this real sort of turnaround for Microsoft at the time. There was almost nothing going on in the early 2000s. Now it's like there's 50 things happening every day and you sort of have to pick and choose. It was more a case back then of like, damn, am I going to have anything to write about in the next, like, five days, you know, for the magazine? Like, what am I actually going to come up with from this conference or just on a random Thursday – It does seem like things have kind of continuously picked up steam.
1: I've heard it quipped before that the cybersecurity industry is the only one that's been allowed to fail up, so to speak. The problem just keeps seeming to get worse and worse with each passing year. But of course, that can't always just be pinned on the big tech titans or the the companies trying to solve those problems. But it is
0: an interesting trend nonetheless. You know, the security industry is an industry that shouldn't really exist. It exists because humans write software. So software has bugs, you know, so we had to wrap this whole other industry around it to try and make safer this product that isn't safe. A lot of people compare it to cars and seatbelts and that kind of thing, which isn't a perfect analogy, but you get the idea. You've got software and hardware that everyone has to use on a daily basis for every task in their lives. But a lot of it was built without the understanding of how humans were going to interact with it and what the potential vulnerabilities and weaknesses might be. Now we have a several billion dollar industry that that is trying to fix all those problems.
1: Yeah, yeah, and thinking back to the loft folks, it's what's old is new again in a way, right? We're still seeing huge Microsoft vulnerabilities crop up in the news from time and again, and I guess the difference now is the the big companies are less inclined to try to sue or threaten researchers who are exposing bugs in their systems, which is, I guess, a positive development in some. Yeah, way. that's that is
0: that is definitely a positive development. Although I think <laughs> if you ask some of those the loft guys, they could probably point you to some things that are still happening, or other researchers could be like yep, we told you that this is still happening. And you do see it every once in a while, not really the the legal aspect of it, but more of like you might see some social media shaming of a researcher or in an advisory, the vendor might say, you know, or ignore the researcher that reported it to him or something like that. But like the existential legal threats aren't Quite as prevalent as they were twenty years yeah, ago. It's
1: More grousing that you didn't give me two years to fix this research, uh, oh, dear gosh. researcher. Why, why? What? What's going on here? Well, how impolite! Yeah. How, how impolite! How uncouth! So, against that backdrop, what's your most memorable story? So whether it's a vulnerability, a particular event, or or something that you've covered in your in your cybersecurity
0: journalism career? Here, there's probably been a few that that come quickly to mind. One, honestly, was that trustworthy computing memo that I mentioned earlier. For folks that that haven't been in the industry that long, you can go Google that. But I I can vividly remember coming into the e week office. It must have been a Thursday morning because that's when our print deadline was. Print um, deadlines. Print <laughs> deadline. Look that up too. And seeing an email in my inbox and it was from somebody I knew at Microsoft who had forwarded me this memo that Bill Gates had written and I think sent out to the company the day before, or maybe maybe overnight, essentially saying, hey, listen our customers are telling our telling us our software is not good enough, it's not secure enough, and they're running into big problems. And if we don't fix it, they're going to stop using us. And that led to essentially Microsoft taking a whole bunch of different actions. They set up the Microsoft Security Response Center as an eventual result of that. And like approximate effect was they stopped development on Windows at the time. I forget what version it was, probably XP and just stopped. Sounds about right stopped development on it and said, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to hard stop, and we're going to go back and add security features, look for problems, and sort of redo our development practices so that we're focusing on security first and not putting features and usability above everything else. That led to huge changes, not just at Microsoft, but across the software industry, honestly, some of which took you know a decade to to play out that was a big one and that had really long term effects that you know we're still seeing some of which have kind of been rolled back by some of the some of the vendors i think but that was a big one and honestly another one was the story i wrote like right when we launched decipher a few years ago was this oral history of the loft which wasn't so much me writing it but it was me you know talking to not just the loft members but people who were around the the BBS and hacking scene at the time, you know, in the the mid to late 90s and very early 2000s, and sort of chronicling not just the growth of the Loft and the birth of that, but like how that spread its tentacles out into the larger cybersecurity world, the effects that all of these folks have had on the broader security and software worlds themselves. You know, if you go and look at what those folks have done over their careers. It's pretty wild. I know you had Space Rogue on here. Space Rogue, friend of the
1: podcast. Yeah. And it is, it is, they are such a goldmine of the Loft members, such a goldmine of that cybersecurity history, the how we got here point. Exactly. It's, and it is so important, I think, because in this industry, you do keep seeing so many of the same mistakes repeated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so I, I do think revisiting that and, speaking with loft and getting that oral history is a, is a very powerful piece of journalism in the in the cyber world so so definitely i can see how that's a that's a seminal moment in your in your career there getting that teasing that out now on the flip side do you have a story that got away one that you really thought you could nail down but didn't quite
0: bring over the finish line god that's such a tough one there's you know i think any journalist will tell you they have there's a bunch of those if you've been doing it for any significant amount of time there's there's one that me and one of my colleagues worked on. I don't want to, like, the problem is I can't really, because we didn't pull it across the goal line. Like, you right, can't, like, you can insinuate, give... but right. <laughs> yeah, I can maybe tell you about it later, but, like, it's <laughs> it's a pretty good one that I, we had some pretty good information that there was a significant leak inside one of the major software vendors of, like, their bug information. So it was getting out, Before public disclosure, so you can imagine what the effects of that could have been, you know, you could end up with, depending on how the leaks were happening, you could end up with cybercrime groups, or even APT teams, having access to a bug in, you know, software X, before even, you know, maybe the development teams inside the company knew about it, or before it was fixed. Obviously, before a patch was available. So, dear listeners, you can't hear it, but I'm grimacing right now. <laughs> yes, yeah, we worked on it for a long time, and we essentially knew we were right and had pretty much everything we needed to do, but couldn't get the last little bits to to really get it into print. You know, it's still one of those things that that me and this person kind of talk about every once in a while. And think, man, God, we're this close. You know, we could if we just. You know, we need like one more person to say, "Yep." That definitely still bugs me. I think about it every once in a while, but well you know.
1: maybe maybe stay tuned. who knows maybe that'll still come out <laughs> of the woodwork i I do know probably for the better that you did wait for that to become fully ironclad though because as we just mentioned earlier in our conversation, some of the big software vendors can get litigious, so you definitely don't want to put out a put out a story that isn't a hundred percent there on that no, plan. and
0: that's also like the worst feeling as a journalist is if you put something out and then you get told that it was wrong or like you got some important facts, like a little bit, you're just like, Oh my God, especially back in the day when it was print and there was no good way to fix it. Like, you know, you can't just go into the CMS and be like, Oh, let me fix that typo or like whatever (laughs) issue. a you know, an update, (laughs) you know, 15 years ago, that wasn't possible.
1: Early in my journalism career I misquoted the CEO of Google, which went out on the AP wires and that was that was a fun one. But uh, but Sorry I, I will
0: laugh, say <laughs> No, 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 I feel it, was, it was I it feel was,
1: it. Yeah. It was pretty brutal, the corrective that had to be issued. Now it's it's been a it's been a pretty tough decade. You know, obviously cybersecurity media it's so important and the, the ecosystem is is still very vibrant and you have all these amazing sources offering the cybersecurity community news, whether it's free or with a subscription. But you know Unfortunately, there have been a series of layoffs. There have been some buyouts and closures. Yeah. Protocol recently shut its doors, and more recently, the, the Washington Post Cybersecurity Two Hundred Two folded into their technology newsletter. Where do you see the future of cyber journalism against this pretty challenging
0: backdrop? Yeah, that's something I think about quite a lot, honestly. in, in me, and you know, other journalists I know in the industry. Talk about quite a bit because we've all sort of had to adjust or make changes in our careers because a lot of us started in that world where there were big technology magazines that were, you know, had been around for a long time and were stable. And then within a couple couple of years, that all deteriorated very quickly. So you moved to online, you know, and some of us started our own things and, and stuff like that. And I was always really happy when I saw something like the, the 202 or those other publications start like, great. Let's get more people writing about this. More information is better for everyone. This is a really complex topic. And the more that we can make it, you know, understandable for um, general purpose audiences, the better off we all are. When one of us is safer, we all get a little safer. So that always made me really happy. Even if it was a little competition for us, I was fine with that. I do think, and this is, you know, may sound a little self-serving, but I do think that kind of the corporate sponsored brand journalism world that we sort of started to help at ThreatPost and have continued at Cipher is one of the main avenues that I think is not just for cybersecurity journalism, but for probably tech journalism and some other niches as well is a really viable option because, you know, when we started Cipher at Duo Security at the time, the goal was to democratize information about security. We wanted to make it understandable and and usable for, for everyone, not just experts. You know, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an expert. I just, you know, been doing this for a long time. And most of the journalists that are covering this, you know, some have engineering backgrounds. Most of us are just writers. And I do think that that's one of the more viable pathways for cybersecurity journalism going forward, because the, you know, media organizations it's a tough go like advertising isn't there the models are just so different now it's really difficult to see i mean Even in general purpose media, like Sports Illustrated, just shut down like last week. Like that's been around for sixty years. What are we doing? Pitchfork folded into GQ. I mean, there's all sorts of changes. Yeah,
1: no, I I hear you. And honestly, you're preaching to the choir there, talking about uh, editorially independent publications that come in under the auspices of cybersecurity vendors in some cases. And I agree. You know that that is one avenue for getting important information out there. And I don't think that it's a model that automatically taints the. The quality of the content, and I, I think that's been a misconception. And I think actually, you've seen in recent years, amazing publications emerge, like the Record by Recorded Future, like Decipher. To that rising tide lifts all boat point that you made, I think these all are so, so important for the ecosystem, especially when you consider that some of the traditional legacy media are struggling so much. Now, yeah. I, I did want to speak to that editorial independence point. You know, Decipher does characterized itself as an independent editorial site that takes a, quote, practical approach to covering information security, end quote. And you are published by this you know MFA-focused cybersecurity company Duo, which is pretty well known in the community. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain that kind of editorial firewall, the sort of separation of church and state?
0: Yeah, we've been really lucky with that. So when we started Decipher, it was myself and my colleague, Fumita Rashid, who were the two editors at the time. Mm the sort of philosophy at the time was we're hiring you guys because you're good at what you do. Go do that. We're going to leave you alone. We want you to give our audience, our customers information about security so that they're aware of the problems. And then if you know, if we have something that can help them address those problems, all the better. But we just want more people to be aware of what the threats and the, the problems are out there. So we were acquired by Cisco not long after that, about a year after we started Cypher, I think, Almost exactly a year, and you know that philosophy carried over to Cisco, and I'm, I couldn't say better things about the way that we've been treated and how they view us and the editorial independence. Several different, you know, sort of managers that we've had over the the years. Everyone understands that. We're trying to get more information into the hands of more people so that people understand what the threats are, what the vulnerabilities are, how to fix them, and that this doesn't all have to be terrifying and scary and everything isn't awful all the time. And there's a lot of bad stuff happening, but there are steps you can take and there's people out there trying to defend it and trying to help you. So Cisco and the executives that we deal with who are you know our higher ups, very clear understanding of what the philosophy is and have been... Really, really tremendous in in letting us do what we do well. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I, I think it's important that uh, it sounds
1: like these said executives have a high degree of media literacy to kind of understand that, yes, okay, just because Decipher isn't out there marketing Cisco essentially products or something doesn't mean that there's not value there, both for the, for the company, but also again, to that community point writ large, which, which is so important to just emphasize when you have something as tough to market, I put in quotes as, as journalism can be. Now, ha- have you ever, have you ever considered starting a publication that
0: wasn't about cybersecurity? Oh man. Have I ever, I sure have. Like I have a bunch of different, you know, sort of varied interests outside of like, you know, outside of technology, you know, I I play a ton of golf. I'd love to do something in golf media at some point, I think would be a lot of fun. I'm like a complete movie nut. So I'd love to do like, we do some movie podcasts on Decipher like about hacker movies and stuff like that. But I'd like to do like some sort of general Movie podcast or something. There's a million of them out there, so it's, that's you know, sort of a crowded field. But writing wise, I don't know. Like, as you know, man, like writing's hard. Like it's it's really hard. It's time consuming.
1: Not when you just outsource it to AI, Dennis. That's yeah, no even...
0: <laughs> <laughs> What are we doing? We should <laughs> just Chat GPT the hell out of all that's this. That's right. But, that's right. I mean, I also like write books in my spare time, so. By the time I'm done writing for work and then writing something, you know, some kind of fiction piece, I'm kind of exhausted. So, like, even if I do feel like, hey, it'd be so fun to have, like, a golf media site or a movie media site or whatever, like – then you think about what all that entails. You're like, I don't know, man. I'll just yeah. read everybody else's stuff and be happy.
1: That's fair. Rounding up freelancers or something for that doesn't sound like a, a fun oh, no. spare time activity. Now, you, you, I'm glad you mentioned your, your fiction writing. You do have two published novels to your name, Motherless Children and the latest Be Gone. Yeah. How has your experience as a reporter and editor influenced your fiction writing?
0: Quite a bit, actually. I mean... Both stories have a little bit of a security element to them. They don't – like the the main plot points don't turn on, you know, hacking or anything like that. But they do have – like one of the characters in both books is essentially freelance hacker type who's, you know, involved in the stories. I definitely have used my background to kind of like inform the plots of those stories. And just my experience as like a, you know, having been a reporter and editor for so long – understanding the way that story structure works and the way to get, bring people into a story and keep them there, hopefully, and, you know, communicate the ideas that I have over the course of, you know, 400 pages instead of like 1500 words. That was honestly a big challenge for me because you're so used to writing like, you know, okay, you've got like maybe 45 seconds for somebody to read whatever it is you're writing on online. Right. But, When I decided I wanted to write a novel, I knew that I didn't really want to do a technology based ones. Like there's a bunch of people that do that kind of stuff really well, but I wanted to kind of like step back from what I write about every day to sort of like I've always loved crime novels and like murder murder mysteries and that kind of stuff anyway. So I was like, you know what? Let me let me try that, see if I can see if I can do it. And I really enjoyed it. So it's something I'm I'm happy I I got to do. And got a third one it's sort of in progress i don't know things take time but you know hopefully in okay, the next
1: okay few months ready, ready ready to roll out got some working titles already or still still a little uh still a
0: little too early to say i tend to wait until the end and, and see if i can come up with a few that might work and then close my eyes and point to one on a list and be like yeah let's let's go with that can we expect more
1: juicy crime plotting related to it or
0: Definitely. Yeah. I I think I, you know, I figured out I have one thing that I'm good at. And so I might as well stick with that. I'm not, you know, I'm not writing any, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no romance novels in my future, I don't think.
1: Well, you did start off your journalism career covering crime too, which is interesting because there are, you know, quite a few parallels between the cyber and crime world. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, what similarities you see between those beats of, of violent crime and cyber crime. And you know there are there are some places where they overlap like uh, uh, Andy Greenberg's tracers in the dark book comes to mind of yes. kind of the world of like cryptocurrency dark web marketplaces, and you do get these you know knock on the door bang bang arrests and all kinds of wild physical violence that can offshoot from that uh, what are your thoughts on those
0: two disparate areas of crime? They're both really interesting to me on a on a in a few different ways I mean one of the things I really liked about when I was a daily newspaper reporter covering crime was it was something different every day. You never knew when you walked into the office or the courthouse or whatever that morning, what, what the day was going to bring. You never knew. So that was always cool to me. It wasn't like going to a city council meeting, like every Tuesday night. And like, you know, you know what the agenda is. So it was always something different. And that's certainly how the security beat works too. Like you never know even from hour to hour, what, what you could be writing about or talking about. So I love that. And honestly, like, like you mentioned in the last, yeah, probably eight to 10 years, the overlap between cybercrime gangs and traditional, you know, whatever you want to call it real world crime has certainly, it was always there from the beginning because some of the early, you know, cybercrime groups were associated with you know, organized crime groups, especially in you know Russia and other places, and that's still true. But it's become much more of a, a overlap. You know, that Venn diagram is much tighter now, uh, especially with the cryptocurrency world. You mentioned Andy's book, which is amazing. He's written a couple of others that sort of look into that as well. You, you turn over a couple of rocks, and you're like, oh my god, this is so bad. Like the connection between traditional organized crime groups. And cybercrime groups isn't even, they're just sponsored by them. You know, they're directly connected now. And it's, you know, it's a less risky play for organized crime groups than, you know, stealing cars or robbing banks or whatever. Like cryptocurrency and cybercrime, you know, in general is just a much, there's a lower barrier. To entry and it's like the risks of actually getting caught in facing any consequences for it especially in some of the countries we don't you know western countries don't deal with from a law enforcement perspective very very low so yeah, yeah unfortunately the connection is very strong
1: yeah there's still that sense of impunity in some parts of the world where it's just people criminals feel empowered to carry out some of the worst I don't even want to call them, I don't want to dignify them by calling them shenanigans, but worse crimes. I mean, yeah. ransomware in hospitals, attacking our critical infrastructure. It's really, it's grim out there. And you do weigh in on some of these heady security topics pretty regularly with your your own podcast, the Decipher Security Podcast. Definitely encourage our listeners to check that one out. You've hosted an array of C-suite level speakers. Do any memorable guests
0: come to mind? Oh man, that's a good question. Some of my Favorite people I've gotten to talk to are honestly people that have become friends of mine, like folks that I've had on over the years, several times, like Gary McGraw, who's a a software security expert, who's been doing, you know, security stuff for almost 30 years is just one of the smartest and like most engaging podcast guests you'll ever have. He's also like a world-class musician and has all these other, you know, crazy interests last year. Oh God, I guess it's two years ago now. Time. Time's Moving Fast, I got to talk to Meg Gardner, who's also a crime novelist, and was the co-author of Heat 2 with Michael Mann, the book that they're turning into a movie. I think I think they've already started filming it as, as we're talking. And like I had loved her writing, and I just randomly reached out to her when I saw the book come out, and I knew there was some, some sort of connection. And I was like, would you consider coming on the podcast? She got right back to me. It was like, love to. Let's do it. And I was like, oh my God. I've never been more nervous in my life. Like she, you know, she couldn't have been sweeter and couldn't have been nicer. But I was so like I quadruple checked every, you know, audio thing and I was just like, if this screws up, I'm gonna I'm done. I'm gonna be so mad. But that was great. That's the kind of stuff I love, just like as as an old person who's been around, you know, kind of getting to know these people over the years. I love that kind of historical perspective that informs like what we're seeing now, you know, everything everything old is new again. So those are some of the ones that just jumped to mind now. Yeah.
1: And talking about, you know, circling back to the loft conversation, Cult of the Dead Cow was another one with so much sometimes unrecognized influence. And so, yeah, Joe's writing on that has been really impressive and illuminating. I mean, a certain Texas politician (laughs) is revealing his connection to the Cult of the Dead Cow was, was quite a surprise for- That was a big deal. That was a big deal. For listeners, remind remind us what was his? I always blank on his name. The um,
0: oh, Beto O'Rourke.
1: Beto O'Rourke, of course. Okay, thank you. I was like, I knew, I knew he. You know, people were following his campaign so closely, and then it suddenly emerges that he's just this like ex hacker as well. It's kind of (laughs) kind of out of left field to say the least. It was wild. So you're you're a writer and editor. I have to ask, Oxford Karma, yay or nay? Absolutely,
0: yay for sure. Yeah. I mean Oh okay. I don't know if this is ever gonna air. Okay. Yeah. I mean we can just stop right here if you're yeah. I (laughs) this is one of those weird things I didn't even know it was like a a controversy until I don't know, like I never thought about it in college. I never I was just like, this is how you do it. And then I think at some point in my magazine writing career, one of my editor or one of the copy editors kept like taking out that, you know, the the final comma or whatever. And I'd see it and I was like, what? Why does this keep happening? Like, this is, he's doing this wrong. And then I discovered there's like these two, two absolutely diametrically opposed camps that are just like screaming across the fence at each other. I was like, I don't know, man. It's a little comma, just, just makes it easier to read. You understand the sentence better. I'm, I'm not a big sports fan. So maybe this
1: is where I get my rivalry in is with the Oxford comma <laughs> debate. And I can, I can have something to cheer for and against, but, but thanks for being honest, at least even, even if you're wrong, I, I appreciate that's okay. the, the, the transparency there. I mean, um, I'd
0: agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's <true. laughs>
1: no, so finally, this is something that we ask of all our guests of the podcast, which is what's something that we wouldn't know about you just by
0: looking at your LinkedIn profile. Oh God. Yeah, there's probably a lot of things. I mean, one interesting thing is like when I was a kid, we lived on this little tropical island called Kwajalein, which is part of the Marshall Islands, which are like if you fly to Hawaii and then fly another six hours southwest of Hawaii, you'll get to the Marshall Islands. It's a tiny little speck in a chain of islands called the the Kwajalein Atoll. It's essentially an army base, army installation. And we, the US army did a lot of missile testing there during the mid century. And my dad was in the army, and then he was an engineer for IBM. So we lived on this tiny little island that's literally like, I want to say it's about a mile and a half long and like half a mile wide. It's one of the most remote places in the world. And, but I loved it. I was like, three, four five years old when we lived there. So I was just like, running around with no shoes on, you know, like having the time of my life, like not going to school, having a great time. It was amazing. I loved it.
1: Well, let the record show, I also grew up on an island, actually, Little Sanibel. A little more accessible, though, it sounds oh, like. Oh, yeah, uh, I've been than there. Than That's Marshall a cool place. Island. Yeah, so, nice. uh, so now, now, shoot, now somebody probably knows some security question, one of my, but so it goes. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing some of your, your insights on the security media landscape and your experiences. Uh, really appreciate having you on the show here. My pleasure. Thanks
0: so much for having me.
1: If you liked what you heard today, I hope you'll give us a five-star rating and review. It's a big help. And please share this episode if you know anyone who could appreciate a little InfoSec wisdom on their morning commute. We have a whole catalog of episodes well worth a listen, so you may want to check out past interviews as well. Finally, if you know someone who might be a good fit to appear on the podcast or have any comments or feedback, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com. Until next time.
0: We're In is brought to you by Synac. If you're looking for on-demand continuous access to the world's most skilled and trusted security researchers, you can learn more at CyNac.com. CyNac recently launched its Empower Partner Program so that partner organizations can more easily offer the CyNac pen testing platform to their own customers. This approach helps optimize CyNac partners' technical competencies and allows them to better integrate CyNac into their portfolios. It's a way that partners can win new business by adding continuous, best-in-class solutions to cybersecurity, cloud, and DevSecOps offerings. Synac partners with organizations around the world to make them safer, more resistant to cyberattacks, and more capable of finding and fixing dangerous vulnerabilities before attackers are able to exploit them. Learn more at
1: synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot